Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. An English fleet left Britain in 1628 for the St. Lawrence River, led by the adventurer privateer Kirk Brothers. Samuel de Champlain anxiously awaited relief ships from France to feed the residents of Quebec, who were on the point of starvation. In 1629, the five Kirk Brothers, now aware of the desperate conditions facing the Quebecers, demanded a French surrender of the fort, settlement, and fur trading post. The war with England brought disaster to the Company of New France. At Dieppe there had lived for many years an Englishman named Jarvis Kirk, who with his five sons, David, Louis, Thomas, John, and James, knew much at first hand about the French merchant marine. Early in the spring of 1628, Kirk, who had shortly before moved to London, secured letters of mark and sent forth his sons to do what damage they could to the French in the St. Lawrence. Champlain had spent the winter at Quebec and was, of course, expecting his usual supplies with the opening of navigation. Instead came Louis Kirk, sent from Tadoussac by his brother David, to demand surrender. Champlain made a reply which, though courteous, was sufficiently bold to convince the Kirks that Quebec could be best captured by starvation. They therefore sailed down the St. Lawrence to intercept the fleet from France, confident that their better craft would overcome these sardines of the sea. The plan proved successful even beyond expectation, for after a long cannonade they captured without material loss the whole fleet which had been sent out by the Company of New France. Ships, colonists, annual supplies, building materials, all fell into the hands of the enterprising Kirks, who then sailed for England with their booty. Alike to Champlain and to the hundred associates, it was a crippling blow. Thus, but for the war with England, Quebec would have seen its population trebled in 1628. As it was, the situation became worse than ever. Lewis Kirk had been careful to seize the cattle pastured at Cap Tormalt and to destroy the crops. When winter came, there were eighty mouths to feed on a scant diet of peas and maize, imperfectly ground, with a reserve supply of twelve hundred eels. Towards spring, anything was welcome, and the roots of Solomon's seal were esteemed a feast. Champlain even gave serious thought to a raid upon the Mohawks three hundred miles away, in the hope that food could be brought back from their granaries. Finally, on the 19th of July, 1629, Lewis Kirk returned with a second summons to surrender. This time only one answer was possible, for to the survivors at Quebec the English came less in the guise of foes than as human beings who could save them from starvation. Champlain and his people received honorable treatment and were promised a passage to France. We need not dwell upon the emotions with which Champlain saw the French flag pulled down at Quebec. Doubtless it seemed the disastrous end of his life work, but he was a good soldier and enjoyed also the comforts of religion. A further consolation was soon found in the discovery that Quebec might yet be reclaimed. Ten weeks before Champlain surrendered, the two countries were again at peace, and the Treaty of Sousa embodied a provision that captures made after the treaty was signed should be mutually restored. This intelligence reached Champlain when he landed in England on the homeward voyage. It is characteristic of the man that before going on to France, he posted from Dover to London and urged the French ambassador that he should insistently claim Quebec. As a result of the war, Canada and Acadia were both in the possession of England. On the other hand, the dowry of Henrietta Maria was still, for the most part, in the treasury of France. When one remembers that 1628 saw Charles I driven by his necessities to concede the petition of right, it will be readily seen that he desired the payment of his wife's dowry. 
Hence Richelieu, whose talents in diplomacy were above praise, had substantial reason to expect that Canada and Acadia would be restored. The negotiations dragged on for more than two years, and were complicated by disputes growing out of the captures made under letter of Mark. When all was settled by the Treaty of Saint-Germain-en-Laye, March 1632, Quebec and Port Royal became once more French, to the profound discontent of the Kirks and Sir William Alexander, but with such joy on the part of Champlain as only patriots can know who have given a lifelong service to their country. Alexander had received grants from the British Crown in 1621 and 1625, which covered the whole coast from St. Croix Island to the St. Lawrence. Having regained Canada, Richelieu was forced to decide what he would do with it. In certain important respects, the situation had changed since 1627, when he founded the Company of New France. At this period, the largest interest in European politics was the rivalry between France and the House of Habsburg, which held the thrones of Spain and Austria. This rivalry led France to take an active part in the Thirty Years' War, even though her allies in that struggle were Protestants. Between 1627, when the Company of New France was founded, and 1631, when Canada was restored to France, in 1632 the political problems of Western and Central Europe had assumed an aspect quite different from that which they had worn five years earlier. More and more France was drawn into the actual conflict of the Thirty Years' War, impelled by a sense of new and unparalleled opportunity to weaken the House of Habsburg. This in turn meant the preoccupation of Richelieu with European affairs, and a heavy drain upon the resources of France in order to meet the cost of her more ambitious foreign policy. Hi everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-218-6010. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-218-6010. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-218-6010. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Richelieu's first step in resuming possession of Canada was to compose matters between the Decanes and the Company of New France. Emery Decane and his associates were given the trading rights for 1632 and 79,000 livres as compensation for their losses through the refugation of the monopoly. Dating from the spring of 1633, the Company of New France was to be placed in full possession of Canada, subject to specific obligations regarding missions and colonists. Conformably with this program, Emery de Cain appeared at Quebec on July 5, 1632, with credentials empowering him to receive possession from Lewis and Thomas Kirk, the representatives of England. With de Cain came Paul Lejeune and two other Jesuits, a vanguard of the missionary band which was to convert the Indians. We cast anchor, says Lejeune, in front of the fort which the English held. We saw at the foot of this fort the poor settlement of Quebec all in ashes. The English who came to this country to plunder and not to build up not only burned a greater part of the detached buildings which Father Charles Lemont had erected, but also all of that poor settlement of which nothing is now to be seen but the ruins of its stone walls. 
The season of 1632 thus belonged to Duquesne, whose function was merely to tie up loose ends and prepare for the establishment of the new regime. The central incident of the recession was the return of Champlain himself, an old man who had said a last farewell to France, and now came, as the king's lieutenant, to end his days in the land of his labors and his hopes. If ever the oft-quoted last lines of Tennyson's Ulysses could fitly be claimed by a writer on behalf of his hero, they apply to Champlain as he sailed from the harbor of Dieppe on March 23, 1633. Come, my friends, tis not too late to seek a newer world. Push off, and sitting well in order smite the sounding furrows, for my purpose holds to sail beyond the sunset and the baths of all the western stars until I die. Though much is taken, much abides, and though we are not now that strength which in old days moved earth and heaven, that which we are, we are, one equal temper of heroic hearts, made weak by time and fate, but strong in will, to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. It was Champlain's reward that he saw Quebec once more under the fleur-de-lis, and was welcomed by the Indians with genuine emotion. The rhetorical gifts of the Indians were among his chief endowments, and all that eloquence could lavish was poured forth in honor of Champlain at the Council of the Hurons, who had come to Quebec for barter at the moment of his return. The description of this council is one of the most graphic passages in Lejeune's Relations. A captain of the Hurons first arose and explained the purpose of the gathering. When this speech was finished, all the Indians, as a sign of their approval, drew from the depths of their stomachs this aspiration, Ho! 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 raising the last syllable very high. Thereupon the captain began another speech of friendship, alliance, and welcome to Champlain, followed by gifts. Then the same captain made a third speech, which was followed by Champlain's reply, a harangue well adapted to the occasion. But the climax was reached in the concluding orations of two more Huron chiefs. They vied with each other in trying to honor Sieur de Champlain and the French, and in testifying their affection for us. One of them said that when the French were absent, the earth was no longer the earth, the river was no longer the river, the sky was no longer the sky. But upon the return of Sieur de Champlain, everything was as before. The earth was again the earth, the river was again the river, and the sky was again the sky. Thus welcomed by the Indians, Champlain resumed his arduous task. He was establishing Quebec anew, and under conditions quite unlike those which had existed in 1608. The most notable difference was that the Jesuits were now at hand to aid in the upbuilding of Canada. The Quebec of Mont and de Caen had been a trading post, despite the efforts of the Recollets and Jesuits to render it the headquarters of a mission. Undoubtedly, there existed from the outset a desire to convert the Indians, but as a source of strength to the colony, this disposition affected little until the return of the Jesuits in 1632. With the re-establishment of the Jesuit mission, the last days of Champlain are inseparably allied. A severe experience had proved that the colonizing zeal of the crown was fitful and uncertain. Private initiative was needed to supplement the official program, and of such initiative the supply seemed scanty. The fur traders notoriously shirked their obligations to enlarge the colony, and after 1632 the Huguenots, who had a distinct motive for emigrating, were forbidden by Richelieu to settle in Canada. There remained the enthusiasm of the Jesuits and the piety of those in France who supplied the funds for their work among the Montagnais, the Hurons, and the Iroquois. As the strongest order in the Roman Catholic Church, the Jesuits possessed resources which enabled them to maintain an active establishment in Canada. Through them, Quebec became religious, and their influence permeated the whole colony as its population increased and the zone of occupation grew wider. Lejeune, L'Allemand, Brébeuf, and Jogues are among the outstanding names of the restored New France. Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying images. I'm Mark Vinette. And I hope you're enjoying the ride.
Doctors endorse it, nutritionists recommend it, and customers love it. Calotrin Healthy Weight Loss. Ron in Texas lost 35 pounds. Marie in Pennsylvania lost 117 pounds with Calotrin. Diane not only lost weight, but she also found relief from arthritis. Lynn lost over 45 pounds. Calotrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body, which decreases as we age. Taking Calotrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calotrin has an amazing 86% success rate with their 90-day supply. And this week, take advantage of their President's Day sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free plus free shipping. Ordering is so easy. Just text the word HISTORY to the code 30605 and we'll send you a link to this special offer. Again, text HISTORY, that's H-I-S-T-O-R-Y, using the code 30605.